Father, we pray that through the grace of Christ, you will come and abide with us. Open our eyes to see. Open our ears to hear. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Do you really believe that God loves you? Do you believe that God rejoices because of you? Do you believe that God likes you, that God values you? And I don't mean do you believe just with your mind, but do you believe deep in your being? Does it come out in in how you live? Genesis tells us that God created human beings in his image for the purpose of living in intimate relationship with him. But we have a problem. We have a difficult time believing that we're important to God, that we're loved unconditionally by God, that our very existence is celebrated by God. And because of that struggle, we are often far too willing to live with images of God that paint him as very, very small. And instead of seeing ourselves created in the image of God, we create images of God that look an awful lot like us. And then we lament that God isn't what we want him to be. Because of our sinful nature, our sinful choices, our sinful world, we have come to believe things about God that are simply untrue. And John tells us in the beginning of his gospel that because of these false images of God, when God speaks and acts and and tries to tell us the truth about his desire for relationship with us, we miss him. Our perspective, our small vision of God, not only sells God short of who he really is, but it leads us to despair and and hopelessness about life. And this is why Christ comes. To correct our false and, and, and despairing images of God. Those images that that distort who God is. And, and if we're honest, we, we have a number of those images. J.B. Phillips in his book, Your God, Too, Your God is Too Small, and David Siemens in, in a number of his writings present a litany of unreal, false views of God that human beings tend to live with. Among the, the ideas that they present of these false gods that we accept far too often is, is the legal God. This is the God who sits in heaven with his book of numbers, taking account, taking into accounting of all that we do. He ignores the good things that we do, but he writes down every mistake that we make. And he writes it with non-erasable ink. This God dooms us to punishment. We're never free from the guilt of whatever it is we might have done at whatever time in our lives. In the eyes of this God, no matter how hard we try, in his courtroom, we are always, always, always 
guilty. For some, our, our false image is of the, what David Siemens calls the gotcha God. This God who resembles Sherlock Holmes, trailing us like a private detective or an agent for the FBI. And when we get out of line, he jumps out of the bushes and yells, gotcha. And he takes a lot of joy in doing that too. And off to prison we go. Now, the legal God may not declare our sin until judgment day, but we hear about it the moment we do it from the gotcha God. And we, he, and we hear about it again and again and again. And this God makes us feel as though someone is always on us, following us everywhere we go, hoping we will mess up so he can yell, gotcha, and take us down. We wrestle with an image of God as what might be described as a spoiled king who simply expects us to appease him. He sits in his palace in the sky and he waits for us to offer him sacrifices. He demands that we give up things for him, particularly things that bring us pleasure or things that might be fun for us. He not only doesn't expect us to enjoy life, he doesn't want us to enjoy life. This God calls us to give away all that we have except for the things that make us miserable. Those things we get to keep. The detached God is another false image we live with. The detached God is simply too busy to get involved in our lives because they think about keeping the world going, figuring out why things happen as they do. The detached God doesn't care about human beings or our problems, doesn't want to get involved in our lives. He just sits in heaven and thinks. He's cold and distant and withdrawn. He sits silently in his office with the door closed and a sign that reads, Do not disturb. I'm busy. Perhaps the false image with which we struggle most is the Pharaoh God. This God is the unpleasable taskmaster who's always increasing demands on us. Like Pharaoh of old, he commands that we build what he wants with the bricks that he supplies. And we do, and we feel good about it, and we expect him to praise us. But instead, he says, well, that's good. But now I want you to build the same thing, and you have to go find your own bricks. And we do. And we come to him, and we offer to him what we've made, and we expect praise. And instead, he says... Okay, that's good, but now what I want you to do is to build the same thing, and you have to make your own bricks, and you can't lessen the quota one brick. No matter how hard we try to please this God, we do all that we know to do, even when we think we're doing pretty well, he lowers the boom on us and declares, that's not good enough. More work. Faster, better, stronger, smarter, more and more and more. He just keeps pulling the carrot a little bit away from us every time we get close to it. Keeps piling on more. It's a never-ending cycle. Our small false images of God that look an awful lot like us hinder our ability to see our lives and the events of our lives and to see others correctly and clearly. And so when tragedy strikes, when difficulties come and when when life takes a turn that 
that discourage us, us because of these false views of God, we tend to see God as the cause of our problems rather than the answer to our problems. We see God as the cause of our pain instead of the answer to our pain. Amy Oden, in her book, God's Welcome, tells of a man named Stan who's been attending a church for several weeks after his co-workers invited him to come. And, and he found the church to be friendly enough and, and uh, after being there a few weeks, made an appointment to talk with the pastor. And he, he arrives at the pastor's office and he's pretty nervous. And uh, he enters and after a few pleasantries, the pastor invites him to be seated and they begin to talk. And they discuss Stan's work. And, and then in the middle of that conversation, Stan just stops. And his brow furrows. And he says, you know, I have to tell you, I don't feel at home at the, in the church. I don't feel at home in any church. And the pastor listens as Stan recounts all that he's been taught about the Christian life. How God loved him and wanted him to follow God's ways and God's will. In fact, Stan shares that he grew up in the home of very devout Christian parents. And his ex-parents' expectations were often synonymous with God's expectations. As a child, who's was always anxious about being afraid that God was going to be mad at him or that his parents were going to be mad at him. He felt as if he could never quite do enough, never quite be good enough. And he recognized all of his minor failures and oversights, and he kept asking himself, how can I truly be a good Christian? By his teen years, he began to see that most of these so-called Christian adults around him had their own flaws. And he finally came to the conclusion that the Christian faith was just a sham. A bunch of talk that people use to try to get them to follow certain rules. And he said, if, if God couldn't be satisfied with his efforts, then just forget it. And he said, by college, he just wiped his hands of the whole thing. Of this whole temperamental God that he was trying to follow. When Stan recounts his story, sadness fills his face. And he says, I know there's more to life, and I want it. I feel this pull, but I don't know exactly to what. I don't know. I don't trust this whole Christian thing. I'm probably not supposed to say that to a pastor, but there it is. And the more Stan talks, the more his pain and his anger come out about the manipulations of a God who keeps putting up hoops for people to jump through and about his own sense of failure and feeling lost. I suspect it doesn't take too much for us to relate in some form to stand struggle. We blame God for being the kind of deity that we imagine him to be, but the problem is It's that it's not that there's something wrong with God. The problem is us. Our struggle with these false images of God is rooted in what David Siemens calls damaged receptors. There's nothing wrong with God's message. Nothing wrong with God's voice. Nothing about God's desire for us and his love for us has ever changed. And the people about whom John writes... Miss Jesus, not because something is wrong with him, but because something is wrong with them. The problems with us. Because of sin, our sin, other sin, the sin of the world, 
Our ability to hear God's word and to discern God's message, our acceptance of God's grace and love has been damaged. And instead of God's perfect communication getting through to us perfectly, his perfect message gets marred and twisted and confused and misunderstood and distorted, and it makes God look different than he is. I think this is one of perhaps the most effective attack that Satan has against us. He knows that if he can damage or destroy our ability to hear the truth of God's word to us, if he can misrepresent God's message to us and distort our image of God, then maybe we will begin to believe those distorted, twisted ideas. And despair about following God and like stand, throw up our hands and say, what's the point anymore? Because of our false images of God, we struggle to believe that God really wants to have anything to do with us. I mean, if we've been around the church long enough, we can, we are quick to say, I know God loves me. But we struggle to believe God accepts us. We might think, if people only knew the sins with which I struggle, they'd realize how hard it is for me to believe that God wants me and accepts me. And we, we lament, I've turned away from God, I've hurt so many people, I've been involved in unacceptable things, and not just once or twice, but dozens of times, hundreds of times. And we tell ourselves, God can only forgive so much. God can only take so much, and then he's going to wash his hands of me. And our enemy's ultimate goal, which is often far too successful, is to erode our trust of God, to turn us away from God, and and to cause us to live in fear and suspicion of these false images of God. Into all of this mess, Christ is born. Through the centuries, God makes constant attempts to help us. Through the beauty of creation, the call of his grace, through the Mosaic law and the judges and the prophets and the writings, God keeps giving us information that will help us see who he really is. But all of it falls short, leaving God Only one option, to send his son, to take on human flesh so that we can know what the true God is really like. And so we can have a relationship with him. And Jesus is born with the very people who reject him. Jesus is born for the very people who reject him. And because of the very people who reject him, he comes because he loves us. Because we're important to him, because he desires intimacy with us. I never tire of, of thinking about Dennis Kinlaw's comments that in the early centuries of the Christian church, as theologians tried to understand the mystery of the incarnation, and some intriguing questions arose. And one of them was if human beings had never fallen, would God have sent Christ anyway? And some of them decided that yes. If Adam and Eve had never sinned, 
the eternal son would still have come and taken on human flesh. And the reasoning for that was because God likes us. Because God wants to be near us. Because God wants us to be one with him. Like Dennis Kinlaw, I like the idea that Christ would come even if we had never sinned. But scripture doesn't really address that. The scriptures do make clear that Christ comes because God seeks a relationship of intimacy with us in spite of our sin. And how do we know that? How do we know that God wants intimacy with us despite our sin? Because a couple of thousand years ago, a child is born. And angels sing and shepherds come and magi in the east see a star. And John says in his gospel that though human beings whom God created in his own image turn from him and misrepresent him and believe all kinds of false accusations about him, that God still yearns for intimacy with us. And since it's obvious that, that nothing in is going to change on our end, God makes the first move. Actually, God makes the first move and the second move and the third move and the fourth move. God makes all the moves, culminating in the Christ child. Jesus comes to restore us, to repair our damaged receptors by his grace. Jesus comes to reveal God as he truly is. As the one who does everything out of a heart of love and compassion for us because he wants relationship with us. And despite the images with which we live, God sends his son not reluctantly, as though he's being pressured by some unseen force. Nor does he send his son angrily, as we might through gritted teeth. Nor does he send his son complacently, with little regard for what it means, all that his son will endure. God knows all that's going to happen. And yet the child is born. And the plan of God's mind from the foundation of the world is set in motion. John tells us that Christ is born so that we who are created in God's image might through Christ be made children of God. And the promise of restoration and intimacy is at the heart of of Zephaniah's prophecy. He says in chapter 3, verse 17, that on that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear, the Lord your God is with you. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. God takes delight in you. God rejoices over you. In fact, when God thinks of you, he breaks into song as he loves you. And the most natural response to a glimpse of the true God in Christ is faith. 
John talks about those who receive him, who believe in his name, who trust. However weak and small that trust may be, those who trust that God is who he says he is. He loves us and likes us and yearns for us and delights in us, not because we are good, but because he is. As Martin Lloyd-Jones once stated, the most wonderful thing of all is not that my sins have been forgiven, nor that I might enjoy certain experiences and blessings as a Christian. The thing that should astound me about simple faith, about simply receiving what Christ comes to give, is that I am a child of God. I'm a child of God. One of my favorites, one of my favorite preachers is Fred Craddock. He's now retired from Years of teaching at uh, the Divinity School at Emory University. He tells of years ago being on a vacation in the Smoky Mountains with his wife. They loved to stop at a place there called the Blackberry Inn. Had the whole side of the wall was glass and you could see out into the mountains. Beautiful scenery you could look at as you ate. And they were in there one evening relaxing, trying to find something to eat. And an old man, well advanced in years, came over to their table. He said, good evening. He said, good evening. He said, uh, you on vacation? He said, yeah. He said, you having a good time? He said, yeah. And Craddock's thinking, what does this guy want? He said, well, uh, I hope you enjoy your stay. Said, Thank you. And the guy started to walk away and he stopped. He turned around and he said, well, by the way, what do you do? And he said, well, I teach in seminary. He said, oh, you're a preacher. Well, yeah, he said, pulled up a chair. He said, I want to tell you a story. He's like, okay, we're trying to eat here, but all right. He said, um, I was born back here in these mountains. And my mother was not married. And, and in those days, such shame. We'd go to town together and all the women of town would look at her and they'd look at me and try to, try to guess who my father was. And the reproach that was on her fell on me. Kids at school had a name for me. Recess, I hid out in the weeds. I ate my lunch alone. So I started going to a little church back in there called Laurel Springs. And there was a preacher. Cracky, rough preacher. Prince Albert Coat, beard, big voice. He said, he scared me to death, but he, but he fascinated me too. He said, I'd, I'd, go, I'd go just for the sermon. I didn't want to get there early and, or stay too late for fear that somebody might talk to me and say, hey, what's a boy like you doing in church? So I'd just go late for the sermon and leave early. And one Sunday, I'd been going there for a bit of time, and when the, when the sermon was done and the, and the service was over, everybody kind of bunched up in the aisle. And I couldn't rush out as I usually did. And I could feel panic rising up inside of me. What if somebody says something to me? What if somebody sees me and recognizes me? Oh, this is bad. And he said, I could just feel the anxiety and the panic filling my whole being. And all of a sudden, I felt a hand on my shoulder. I looked out of the corner of my eye and 
It was that preacher. I saw his beard. I saw that face and thought to myself, oh, no. And so the preacher turned me around. He looked at me and he said, well, boy, you're a child of, and he paused. I thought to myself, what's he going to say? He looked me square in the eye and he said, boy, boy you're, a, you're a child of God. I see a striking resemblance. He said, he swatted me on the backside and said, now, son, go claim your inheritance. And Fred Craddock said that this old man told them, I was born that day. Craddock said, what's your name? He said, Ben Hooper. He said, my mind began to go back, and I remembered Ben Hooper. I remember my father telling me how twice the people of Tennessee elected an illegitimate governor named Ben Hooper. As we celebrate once again the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to admonish you, the grace of God to know that Jesus is born because God loves you and he accepts you and he rejoices over you. Now in faith, believing, claim your inheritance as a child of God. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to who you really are and give us faith that in your grace we may live as children of God. Through Christ Jesus. Amen.